Welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from former Belanti AMC and Fox exec David Madden about building out Wattpad Webtoon Studios and the impact of the US writers' strike. And from director Anthony Hemingway, colour creatives Talitha Watkins, colour of changes Rashad Robinson and Exile Content Studios Nando Villa about bringing representative stories to screen. David Madden is Head of Global Entertainment for Wattpad Webtoon Studios. The company created two years ago when South Korean tech company Naver acquired Canadian literary platform Wattpad and combined it with its own Webtoon online comics business. Madden, who previously served stints as a senior exec at Belanti Productions, AMC Networks, Fox, Paramount and others, now oversees development production and sales for the company's global TV, feature film and animation operations. He spoke with Jordan Pinto about the string of projects that have emerged from these activities and those it has in development, such as Law Olympus with the Jim Henson Company, plus how the US writers' strike is impacting upon them. Thanks very much for being here uh, for this content strategy session with David Madden of Wattpad. David, hi, how are you? I'm very well, good to be here. Fantastic. Um, okay, so David is the head of global entertainment for Wattpad Webtoon Studios, which is the global entertainment and publishing arm of Webtoon and Wattpad. Um, we'll, we'll, get in, we'll get into all, uh, all the ins and outs of, uh, of where everything sits within this. Um, but Wattpad and Webtoon essentially are two story sharing platforms um, with enormous um, userships, I think more than 170 million combined. And your, your job essentially, you've, you've been brought in within the last year to oversee the kind of entertainment uh, side of the equation, which is the adaptation of some of these stories into film and TV projects. You nailed that. Okay. Doing okay so far. Um, okay, so David, you're, you're kind of from the, what I will describe as like the TV, TV world, okay? So previous role was um, president of Berlanti Productions. Um, prior to that, you've been with AMC and at Fox, both on the studio side and the um, network side as well. What was it that attracted you to, to this job? It's, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's different. It's certainly different than things you've done in the past. It's totally different to anything I've done in the past, which was the fun for me. I mean, I'm, I'm really old. I've been doing this a long time. So I really only worked at traditional companies, the 20th century companies like Warner Brothers and, and Fox and Paramount. Um, and so when I left uh, working for Greg Berlanti and Sarah Schechter and, and I was trying to figure out something else to do, I, my first inclination was maybe there's something out there in the traditional executive space, and there really wasn't. Uh, so I was about to make a, a producing deal for myself as, as a pod at one of the uh, existing studios, and I was negotiating, but I was like sluggishly negotiating because all I said to myself was, oh God, it's so hard to sell an original idea to anybody, and, and I'm going to do this by myself and try to start my own company, and who's going to give me anything? It's going to be really hard. So I'm negotiating, but I'm negotiating very slowly because I don't want to close the deal. And I get, a, I get a call from a headhunter, from an executive recruiter, who says, oh, there's a company called Wattpad Webtoon Studios, which meant nothing to me. I, I, you know, like, like that, was, that was gibberish. But uh, he said, and, and, it's, and they, they're doing interesting stuff, and you should meet with them. And, and, uh, and I said, okay, well, I tie my hands. I'll happily, happily meet. And it was a tech company, so I had nine meetings because that's what you do with, with any of these tech companies. They, 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 they said, oh, you have to meet this person. Oh, you have to meet that person. Let's meet another time. Let's have another meeting. Okay. But they all were nice meetings and all with interesting people. And basically what I came to realize is in a world where uh, everybody wants some version of IP, and that's become the word that everybody kind of references, or, or phrase that everybody references, we had a ton of it. The company had a ton of it. Um, there was enormous potential um, between the two companies that comprise Wattpad Webtoon Studios, those two companies being Wattpad and Webtoon. Uh, there was a lot of financial backing. There was a lot of ambition. There was a lot of, of uh, desire to build those brands into something that, that could be as meaningful as any brand out there. And so I said, well, this, and, and, I, and I liked everybody I talked to. So I felt like this was a way to, to work at a 21st century company uh, that could take all these titles, many of them ha that had already built-in audiences, built-in fan bases that we were connecting to on a, on a frequently daily basis, and that felt like something I could sell. That felt like an opportunity to get things made. So that was really the reason. And just a side note on the, um, I suppose, the, you know, the, the financial um, backing that the company has. So uh, Wattpad Webtoon Studios is owned by Naver, which is the South Korean company, which is like, I suppose, the South Korean equi equivalent of like a Google. So yeah, that, that's where it sits. Um, since you joined the company 
um, last year. What, what have been some of the main strategic priorities um, for you um, in building the um, this kind of you know story to to screen adaptation business? First of all, it's just trying to organize everything. So we now have a film group, we have a TV group, we have an animation group, all based in LA. We have a few people in each group that focus very specifically on, on one of those two paths, uh, one of those three paths, sorry. Um, but we are genuinely global, so uh, as I speak, we have uh, six shows we're making in Indonesia, four in Malaysia, two in Singapore, one in Thailand. We have um, a movie we're shooting uh, later this year in Australia. We have we made a movie, which I'll reference later, Australia La Matana, which, which uh, was out of Spain last year, we're making two sequels of that. We have people in Jakarta, Manila, Madrid, Paris, uh, all of which comes under our umbrella. So trying to organize all of that, plus also try to get Webtoon as a parent company for uh, a lot of the things on the Webtoon platform to sync up with what is necessary to make rights deals in the US. That was one thing that needed to be kind of dealt with. And, and really our strategy is not hard. Our strategy is just trying to find as many things as we can make in those three areas, in film, television, animation. Animation, most of our businesses is in television, about 80, 90% uh, on, that, on that side. So uh, it's just really to find and identify the most interesting stuff in that platform, try to find the best writers we can find for, for those projects, and then try to find homes for them. And it's been a, like anytime you're starting something up, it's, it's taken time and there's been a lot of spade work to get things to, to where things are now, but uh, we're now in a really good place. Um, how do you decide what you want to adapt? Because there are quite literally millions of stories on both Webtoon and Wattpad. At what point does a story kind of bubble up to the surface where you say either, you know, this has enough viewers or this has, ha has had enough readers on the platform in order for us to be interested in? Is there a threshold? I have a slightly different answer for Wattpad and Webtoon. So Wattpad, uh, where there are literally hundreds of millions of stories on the platform because it's any human being can put their story on Wattpad. There, there's no, as long as it's not offensive or obscene, it, takes, it doesn't cost anything to put it on. The writers retain all their rights. Uh, so so we, we don't even know how many things are on there because things are being uplo uploaded so fast and so frequently. We do know there are 50, 55 languages are being represented on Wattpad. There are 90 million subscribers, monthly subscribers on the platform. Um, but basically, when, when, there, when something accumulates enough reads, and reads does not mean some, somebody's read something from start to finish, it means somebody has gone on a chapter and been on it for enough time that it registers on the platform, then it counts as a read. So if you read 40 chapters of a given story, it counts as 40 reads, not as one. But if something reaches the threshold of 100,000 reads on Wattpad, then it, come, it goes to a group that sits in Toronto, which is essentially a, uh, a group of book scouts that read all of the stuff that, that reaches that, that threshold. Anything they think could remotely be a movie, a show, uh, something, they send to us in, in, in LA, and we read that stuff. And that's usually about 30, 40-ish things a month. Uh, and then out of those, we pick the things that we think could be something, and we then reach out to those authors and make deals, because just because something's on, those, on a platform, we have no rights to that. Uh, we have to go out and make an individual deal each time, and, and that's what we do on the Wattpad side. On the Webtoon side, Webtoon's a little different because that stuff is, is more curated. Um, there is actually interaction between the people who run the platform and the, and the creators of those graphic novels and, and comics. Um, so there's more like thousands of things or tens of thousands, not hundreds of millions. But we do, we do track that data as well. Uh, and there are, so there, for example, there's a title called Tower of God on, on Webtoon, which has 6.4 billion reads, billion, B. Um, and there are many titles that are in the kind of hundreds of millions, low, low billions. So th things that have that kind of reach, things that have that kind of audience, obviously we're, we're hi highly super aware of, and those are big fo foci, focuses, fo foci, I guess I made that up, uh, of, of, our, of our attention. At the same time, we also, things that, that may not be as successful on the platform but may just feel like good stories. So we're really looking in a bifurcated way, both for the titles that, that are the most popular, because obviously that's going to mean something to buyers, especially data-focused focused buyers like Netflix or Amazon or Apple, um, but also some things that, that maybe have been a little too quirky or eccentric or whatever to succeed on the platform, but we think, oh, that, that could be, that's a really great idea for a movie or a great idea for a show. So we look with both lenses. Um, that project that had, or that, that story that had 6.4 billion reads, has, is that being developed as a, as a TV show or is that already a TV show? How dumb do you think I am? Um, <laughs> yes, uh, that, that, that's, I, I can't say what we're exactly doing on it right now, but we are, Tower of God is a, is a huge mythology-based, world-building spe action spectacle. It has 
I'm not saying, I'm not putting it at the same level qualitatively necessarily, but it's at the same level as Lord of the Rings or Star Wars in terms of complexity and, and, and ambition. Uh, so we are in discussions with a few different filmmakers about how to proceed with that. Um, talk us a bit through the process, and maybe this will be interesting for um, some of the producers and creators and writers in the room. Um, obviously, the, the stories are kind of user-generated. User um, you find them, you decide which ones you know, have shown a clear audience and that you think have adaptation potential. Um, what happens next? Like, do, how do you, do, you take, do you prepare those stories with a writer that you know, um, and with a production company, like how does the process um, to start adapting things? Because I know you said that Wattpad likes to work with, um, you know, you work with the entire community. Um, so how do you take things to, to the next stage and start kind of um, integrating and, and working with the community or, or with production companies and creators on, on well, projects? No, you, uh, you, you, you hit on all, kind of some version of all of, all of the above. So it, it, we all know, everybody in this room knows how hard it is to sell anything to anybody, no matter what it is or, or how much uh, audience awareness it has. So everything we do as partners and, and sometimes multiple partners, um, obviously a, a writer is always key, but, but even producing partners that sometimes are filmmakers, sometimes are just people people who have track record in a certain genre. Um, you know, when we're working internationally, which we do a lot, as I mentioned, internationally, but uh, we obviously need uh, producing partners in those territories who have expertise and relationships that we don't have. We are happy to partner in all sorts of different ways. Sometimes we try to take creative leads. Sometimes we take a creative backseat. Sometimes we're genuinely 50-50 partners on a creative basis. Um, so, uh, you know, usually first, if we think that it would be helpful to find a partner that helps us with a specific genre, we'll, we'll look for that person. Sometimes things feel like, oh, this is something that feels more actress or actor-oriented, so we'll try to go to an actor's production company, or if something feels more filmmaker-friendly, we'll, we'll go that direction. Or if something just feels like it's working a certain kind of genre, like if we were trying to do something in the horror space, we might approach Blumhouse or Vertigo or, or companies who have track record in that particular genre. So we re really look at it very individualized, in a very individualized way. And, and, and even in the animation side, and we have a lot of things working on the animation space, we, we look for animation partners who may be good at a particular kind of animation, particular style, or have a particular set of credits that may speak to what we hope and desire that particular animation will look like. Um, do you have any, for, for the television business specifically, do you have any um, kind of goals for the number of shows you would like to either have on air or in production within, I don't know, one year or two years? Um, like I, in, in my mind, the, the hire of, of you was quite a kind of significant moment um, in kind of building out the global television business. Um, and so, yeah, I'd be interested to know whether there's, you know, whether you have hopes in mind for a, a releasing schedule or when, when, some, of these, um, when some of these shows are going to start um, landing. Uh, I will say that, that on the one hand, if you work at any kind of company, there's always sort of a, we'd like to have X amount by this amount, we'd like to have this by that amount. So, yes, I mean, I have theoretical goals, um, but, uh, you know, we don't green light things ourselves in most cases, so you know it's, it's hard, we don't really control our fate. Uh, so, but I, I would just say there is massive ambition for the company. We want to make as much as we can make. We want to do as many different kinds of things as we can. The goal is to build the brand, so uh, and build it through live action television, live action film, and animation. So, uh, you know, obviously it's hard to gauge anything timeline wise because. There's a thing called the writer strike, um, I, which has kind of set us back a bit. Uh, so it's it's kind of made concrete projections a little hard to deal with. Understood. Yes. Um, how receptive have you like strikes aside and all that kind of stuff? Um, how receptive have you found this, um, the U.S. studios being to Wattpad stories? Because kind of as you said, um, it's very hard to sell a piece of, a piece of IP, and you know being able to access your own IP is quite difficult. With Wattpad and Webtoon, you have this enormous you know you have possibly the biggest IP vault in the entire world. Um, how, how receptive have the U.S. studios been to some of the stories that you've been bringing them um, on the development side? Well, honestly, on, I mean, people say what they say in, in situations like this, but honestly, they've been incredibly receptive, partly because we have, in many cases, a, a big audience of things that have, have read a particular piece of material. But just as importantly, it's also like we, they're on our platform every day or every week. They're on their, we, we can reach them. So let's say you buy a book at Barnes & Noble, Barnes & Noble isn't following you home saying, oh, by the way, we're making a movie of this. At least I never got anything like that from Barnes and Noble. Maybe you guys did, but uh, but but people are literally on our platform constantly, so we can say to them, 
oh, wait, guess what? We sold such and such a thing to this place. Oh, we, are, you know, we could cast Bill or Sally. Who do you think we could cast? Oh, we start shooting this day. Oh, we're going to come out this week. We, we're, people are in constant communication with us on our, on our materials. So, and obviously anything where there is some kind of movement entertainment-wise, it matters. Uh, and I, I think the other thing people have been impressed by is really the global reach. It's not just US, it's, it's truly global. Uh, we had a, a movie that we made uh, called, that we were involved in, we didn't really produce it, uh, called Perfect Addiction, which uh, came out in March. Uh, and it hasn't even really come out here in the US. Uh, is nobody in it that anybody here will know. Uh, it, it was a very popular Wattpad story, but that was really all I could tell you about it that would matter. The movie came out in March on Amazon and in worldwide outside of the U.S. It was number one in 37 countries. It was nowhere less than number three. Why? Because of Wattpad. Because and we promoted the hell out of that movie worldwide. And that was the, like I said, the the only real marketing angle the movie had. But it was a testament to the strength of that movie. There was a, a movie that came out a few years ago that came out of a Wattpad story called called After. There have now been six After movies. After is the number one title in Wattpad's history. We are now making After Seven. The world is excited. Uh, and uh, uh, so, uh, um, but it, it's really a testament to the reach, to the reach of, of, of these titles. So the fact that we are also not only able to supply material, but also able to market to the audience that has consumed the material, that's interested in the material, that can get them excited about it. We can not only tell you that there is a core audience, but really can help deliver that core, core audience. So I think, I think that's, that's really a, uh, something that has mattered a lot to the people that we're talking to. Um, I had a question for you here, but someone um, has kindly put it in a much more succinct way. So I'm just going to read well, their question God. from the audience. Uh, so some of the some of the biggest Netflix hits um, have come from webtoons, um, Hellbound, Attorney Wu. Um, is there a plan to create your own streamer or your own some kind of iteration of your own platform to hold on to more rights worldwide? And is is there a future where you could kind of go direct to your audience? You know, there, there's no plan along those lines. I mean, we, we want to walk before we run. Uh, uh, so, I mean, we have stuff, by the way, we're in, in the animation space with Netflix that we're cur currently talking to them about. Um, but uh, is there a world someday where that could happen? I mean, I'd be happy, but there is no plan about that at the moment. Do you see that, or do you feel that Wattpad Webtoon Studios, are you insulated at all from some of the, the stresses and the challenges of a, of a writer's strike in the US? And I mean that partly in the sense that the stories that you find initially are user-generated and obviously not, uh, not WGA, um, but then you eventually, when you're surfacing these stories and putting them, um, putting them into development, that is when you would be working with w WGA writers on them. So like, is there any insulation for Wattpad or are you kind of as, as exposed as, as any other company? Um, I, I would say there's not a lot of insulation. Uh, you know, everything we're, we're trying to put together is ultimately, certainly in the live action space, will ultimately lead to uh, a Writers Guild member, so um, you know, it's, and it's very hard to have a conversation. With, or actually, it's not very hard. It's, it's it's impossible to have a conversation that's meaningful with a buyer without without a writer being involved. You know, we do have things in the animation space. Our animation deals are IA, not WGA. Um, so in certain cases, we've been able to do certain things with some of those projects when when uh, uh, those writers are comfortable. Obviously, there's a lot we can do in, in the international space that isn't covered by uh, English language writers. But you know, the, the key things that are probably uh, uh, the closest to my heart are pretty stymied right now. Um, could it be, do you think Wattpad is, is, is well positioned in that you you have stories and you will be able to speak to studios about, without any writer involvement, you can still you can still be looking for stories that work well on your platforms and kind of even float, floating those ideas to, to studios that could be potentially interested? You know, right, that's a good question and we talk about it. Um, right now, I think the strike is still too raw in people's you know, right, brains is too painful. So I, I think there's too much confusion about what people can and can't do. I think most buyers are still in a, oh God, what are we going to do next? If this is a long strike, um, I think buyers will be more and more anxious to find material that they can acquire, work on, develop, uh, work on, potentially develop. So I think there probably will be opportunities for us to share Wattpad or Webtoon material directly with buyers, but I, I don't think we're ready yet. I don't think people are quite in that headspace. I think people have to get to that space where they say, okay, I don't want to be fired. Uh, I don't want my deal to be suspended. So I better find something to do other than just kind of sit here and twiddle my thumbs. So uh, that that time may come. It's not here yet. Um, taking the strike aside, um, one of the uh, changes we've seen in the marketplace over the past 12 months is that uh, all, all the studios are you know pulling back slightly on scripted programming. There's there's been a, a correction of sorts. 
Um, as someone that has, you know, been, been seen the industry from all sides and kind of been at the top of, you know, many of the many of the biggest U.S. networks and studios, um, like, what, what have you made of the market correction um, over the past 12 months? And and do you see, like, if if the scripted commissioning volume has has dipped currently, do you see it reaccelerating at some point once we're through this period of time, or or do you think we're kind of at a new um, is there kind of a new normal where the the overall commissioning volume will be at a slightly lower level? Uh, I, th I think there was a correction in store anyway. Right, as you say, right, strike aside, I think we we could all read all the stuff about earnings that that companies have announced, and and numbers are are down. Where I think actually there is, uh, I think what will be hurt most are the big, huge, twenty million dollar, twenty five million dollar an episode shows, uh, and that's probably right. I mean, I, th I think that some of those may be of value if the title is meaningful enough or the material is special enough. But I think there was a little bit of lack of discipline that was going on. So I think if there is in the, in the works an era of further fiscal responsibility, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think having fiscal responsibility is okay. It's like playing, you know, when you play tennis, there's a there's a net and there's a court, and you've got to get things in the line. And if you don't, you're you're out. So so I think being responsible is is not a horrible thing to ask of producers and and, and studios to to do. And you know. Earlier in my career, I was at a company that doesn't exist anymore called Fox TV Studios, where we were a part of Fox, but we we had a for lots of reasons much more stringent financial discipline than than uh, than the, the larger studio that was uh, on our lot, and so we made a lot of modestly priced shows um, that were. Sh Every show we did was shot in seven days. Every show we did was was at quote at the best price it could be made for. So the first show we did was a show called The Shield. I was done for FX. It was their first show. It was shot for 1.9 million dollars in LA the first two seasons. We shot you know, a show called The Americans for FX, seven day show, won the Emmy. Um, you know, variety shows. So you can it just because you are saying that you have to operate within a certain budget doesn't mean you can't achieve a higher level of quality. So I, I think the producers and studio and companies that know how to make shows at a price that doesn't go into eight figures that but can still deliver something that is competitive in terms of level of quality and entertainment I think those companies will be rewarded I think there'll be an opportunity for that and I think it, we, we just we're no longer in the land of hey you know the, the you know back up the trucks you can spend whatever you want um, there was a lot of crazy spending over the last few years prior to prior to COVID. Ridiculous spending. So uh, so I think some of that correction is a positive depending on where you sit. Um, okay, we'll, we'll go to some more questions. Um, okay, this is kind of an interesting one. So um, as an American working for a Canadian company acquired by a Korean company, um, were there any new politics to navigate or any cultural differences to get used to? Uh, duh. <laughs> um, uh, no, sorry. Uh, yes, for sure. I mean, it, you know, it, but that's, I mean, yes, and, and, and uh, the uh, culture of, of Webtoon in Korea, the culture of Wattpad in Toronto, the culture of Los Angeles, they were all different, and we all kind of work thoughtfully and carefully to understand each other, but that's sort of par for the course. I mean, you know, like I worked at AMC for a while, for example, and there was a New York culture and an L.A. culture, and the L.A. culture was creative and production-oriented, the New York culture was very business-oriented, and those two sides could barely understand each other, and they're all in the United States of America, um, but, but, you know, because for... For the people in LA, every show was a work of art. For people in New York, every show was a can on the shelf. Uh, you know, it was like a soup can in the grocery store. It was like it was like just inventory. And both things, by the way, are true. Both things are right. And that's the critical thing of the culture to understand is is that uh, is that like in my company, the Korean perspective on what works on Webtoon and what why that Webtoon is so massively successful in, in Korea. And by the way. Webtoon in Korea means as much as Disney means in the United States. But they're right about why their material works. Uh, and even if the, the Los Angeles looks at the, their stuff in, in a very different way, the only way we can be successful is to understand why they think the way they think as well as kind of try to synchronize it with why we think the way that we think. And same with Toronto. So I, I think it, it's, it's different, but you there are always cultural differences in a company, even if you're actually all in the same lot, but just people at people different sides of a business think different ways about it. Um, are there any other um, Wattpad shows either that have um, that have recently been announced as in development or any other shows coming up that you you know haven't mentioned or that we should mention that are kind of illustrative of the uh, of the ambitions and the goals well just in terms of being illustrative one of the things that we are most excited about and this is an animated title is a project called Lore Olympus which is one of the 
uh, biggest webtoon titles. It also is one that has over a billion reads. Uh, Lore Olympus is basically what if the Greek gods were around in 2023, but instead of doing god stuff, they were trying to go to parties and go to clubs and sleep with each other. It's basically the love story between Hades and Persephone, but, it, but it's kind of pretty little gods, if you will. Um, but it's massive, and it has a massive fan base and is really kind of adored throughout the world. So we have, we're working with, uh, in concert with, with Henson Company on that. We have generated uh, two scripts. We have gen generated a, I think, really wonderful uh, kind of short animation piece to demonstrate what we think it would look like as an animated show. So um, we're kind of awaiting um, certain things that are uh, connected to the strike in terms of how we present it to the world. But, but that's a title that, that uh, we really love. And, and uh, you know, I, I, in previous jobs, I touched animation a little bit, like when I was at Fox and, and, uh, and some, some other places. But this is really the first chance I've had to plunge as deeply in an animation as this company allows me to do. And, and, uh, and I, I think uh, its ambition to do something really special in the animation space is, is incredibly high. Um, one question we've had quite a lot, um, and I, this might be a useful clarification question. Um, does what does Webtoon and Wattpad, um, do you take on any third-party content? So would you develop content that wasn't wasn't found on either platform? Like, can people bring ideas to you and pitch them? Or No. No. no they, and, and it's weird, because this is the first job that I've ever, like, mostly I'd be, like, begging people for specs or ideas or whatever, but Really, the, the goal is to take the things that are actually on the platform uh, and, and that are working on the platform and have found some level of success on the platform and try to make shows and movies out, out of those. Like I said, anybody can put their thing on Wattpad uh, and anybody can try to put their thing on Webtoon. As I said, that's a little more curated. Um, but, uh, but it's really, we're not trying to game the system. We're trying to take things that have genuinely found an audience because they earned an audience, as opposed to uh, as, as opposed to try to use it as a workaround. Have you found this to be an interesting way to kind of c come at fi finding the best stories? Because as you know, you spent so long on the traditional TV side, as you said, where you're kind of you know desperately looking for you know scripts and writers. But now you're you know it's it's all it's all kind of on the platform. It's just a case of, of finding it. Well, it's true. It, you know, it, it, it's it's been really the most fascinating part of the job to me. There's a project that we are out we were out trying. To, to sell in television, which got interrupted by the strike, but hopefully we'll find a home for it, uh, called Glory of the Midnight Sun. Glory of the Midnight Sun was written by a young woman in a, in a village outside Lahore in Pakistan. Uh, she was 18 years old when she started writing the book. Uh, it was uh, kind of autobiographically inspired about her experience in an arranged marriage. And in that case, not only did she have an arranged marriage between herself and her husband, but her family moved in with his family under one roof. And there were about 18, 19 people under that one roof all living together. And her point of her story was a marriage is not just about the marriage of two people. It's about the marriage of two families. The story written by this young woman, there was no way she was going to get that story in front of Random House or Simon & Schuster or Netflix or Amazon, but she put it on Wattpad. It took off legitimately. It caught on because the story had so many values that were deemed to be universal. It got to our attention. We made a deal with the writer. We found a Pakistani-American writer who felt like she brings some cultural legitimacy to the project and, and, and some other elements that we thought helped put it together that was that was uh, kind of felt right for the project. But, but here was a person who had a story to tell. She had no other way to tell it other than that platform, and it got to us. Uh, and I think that's, that's really a testament to why this job is really interesting um, okay we're out of time just before before we end David anything else that you'd like to you know share about uh, the Wattpad webtoon Studios journey in uh, 2023 um, no look I I, I, I've, I I think we're all trying to find stories that feel authentic and true and I think what's what's really fun about this is most of these stories are, are that we were experiencing whether on webtoon or Wattpad are not from people who have learned the rules of what sells in Hollywood, have learned the rules of what, what publishers or networks or studios will buy. They're just telling things that feel really truthful, and they're not people who are necessarily driving, within driving distance of Century City. They're from everywhere on the planet, and they're telling their stories. And a lot of them are terrible. You know, obviously, I was, a lot of them are kind of like probably only their grandmother has read some of those things. But many of them have a true voice. Many of, many of them feel like, I never would have thought of that idea. I never would have thought of that experience. I never would have, I never would have come at that idea that way, and that's what's really been fun, kind of the, the, the power of discovery, uh, and uh, uh, so I'm having a good time. Fantastic. Uh, David, that was absolutely fascinating. Uh, thank you so much, and a warm round of applause for David Madden. Thank you.
The Black Lives Matter movement gained worldwide momentum in 2020 when the murder of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police served as a lightning rod for debates around institutional racism and discrimination across society, within the TV industry also. But three years on, the same challenges remain, and as far as entertainment's concerned, creatives still complain of the barriers that prevent diverse stories from reaching and representing the true breadth of the audience. Director and producer Anthony Hemingway, whose credits include Genius, Aretha, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, American Crime Story, Power and The Wire, was among a panel of execs discussing these topics and others at C21's Content LA conference in May. He was joined on stage by Talitha Watkins, president of Colour Creative, a management and production company founded by Issa Rae and Denise Davis, Rashad Robinson, president of racial justice advocacy group Colour of Change, and Nando Villa, head of studio at Candle Media-owned Spanish-language producer Exile Content Studio. The quartet spoke with senior entertainment business leader and cross-cultural catalyst Diana Mogollon. Pleasure welcoming everybody today to our panel, which you guys are going to love, and you're going to love the conversation, and hopefully inviting you to be a part of the conversation. Uh, we're not going to do introductions. We're going to dive right in, because I think everybody knows and has read the bios. You have an illustrious panel here of amazing content creators, storytellers, basically change makers and catalysts like Deluxe. Um, we have Anthony, we have Talitha, we have Rashad, we have Nando, and they have been creating massive impact through their courageous leadership and through their amazing body of work, which I invite you afterwards to make sure if you haven't, please go and see it and watch it and share it. So we're going to dive right in. First off, authenticity and storytelling. We talk about it a lot. It's been written about a lot. And I would love to ask the panel here, whether it's in TV or film or any of the mediums out there, how, what is the right approach to authenticity and telling the stories of underrepresented communities, uh, BIPOC, women, LGBTQ+. How do we do it in the right way? What is your approach? Who wants to go first? <laughs> I think you got to go to the source. So uh, I think authenticity and storytelling has to start with working with people who have shared those lived experiences and can bring that to the page. And um, that's, you know, our uh, storytelling community right now still isn't as diverse as it should be to be able to tell the diverse array of stories that we actually live in. Yeah, I think, in, you know, I work in, in, the, in the Latin American and Latino space for the most part, and, um, I, you know, going to the source is exactly right. I mean, I, there's, there's a lot of shows and films that I absolutely love. Like, I love, I love Narcos. But man, fucking Pablo Escobar was played by a Brazilian guy. Again, excellent actor. Love him to death. But it's like, uh, I don't know, it's like uh, if Matthew McConaughey played James Bond or something. You know, like it would just not feel right. Um, and you see that all the time, you know? Like Breaking Bad, another show that I love. It's like, you can't find someone who can speak Spanish? Like there's got to be, there's a million actors who can speak Spanish for this part, this little small part, you know? So yeah, I, I always find that, that that's... That's, um, it's such an easy thing, uh, you would think, but, but it's just not done as much. I agree. And I think also it requires a level of sensitivity and understanding the humanity that is really going into the project and to the storytelling because that's where you find that authenticity is really starting with the source, involving them, making sure that that voice is also a part of every aspect of the process, not only just the material. Don't let it stop there. Let it follow through through the entire project, you know, in front of and behind the camera. Exactly. Well, that's a really good point because we talk a lot about the writing, the acting, even the directing, but there's so many other roles behind the camera through post-production, the marketing, the packaging that impact uh, these projects from a business and creative level. So uh, please share on that as well. Yeah, I mean, when I think about I mean, I think a lot about sort of the the stories and the ideas that drive people's interest of how they show up in the world. And right, for myself, if I think about my own story, growing up on Eastern Long Island as a black person in a black family, I didn't think of myself as underrepresented, right? And so I think if we start off this conversation with um, the idea that some communities are underrepresented, then we 
then we, then we end up trying to maybe place too many things on that representation. And we don't create the kind of specific nuanced portrayals that actually lend themselves to a deeper understanding of, uh, of an individual or a person. And, and what it does is oftentimes creates flat representations, uh, stereotypical representations, unnuanced representations and portrayals, the same thing over and over again because that's what people think that they need. And content creators are content consumers. So people live, drink, and breathe uh, the environment. And oftentimes are over and over again replicating these same stories, narratives, and tropes, especially when those same, those narratives or tropes are not their own. And so if you look at certain types of stories, you may, you can almost fill in how they will use kind of an extra from a certain community, fill in the sort of uh, voice or accent or um, tone of a certain type of character. And I do think that that does in very many ways call into question who do we have as part of the process? Who's empowered to be part of the process? And what's the incentive structure that allows us to be able to get the best out of all of their sort of abilities? Absolutely. Mic right. drop, absolutely. Oh, my goodness, every Ready? element there. Dance moves. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So you're touching on a lot of the business pieces as well. You talked about being consumers. So every week I feel there's a new study about the power of diverse audiences. You know, like we're the new majority, we're this, we're that. We know it, we live it, we are those communities. But yet Hollywood seems to always give us a narrow lane to represent ourselves and to kind of walk in a very narrow lane. Um, can you share more about these audiences and communities? How is your work impacting these communities uh, and uplifting them and, and really empowering them? Um, I, I'll start uh, this time. Help out, help out my teammates up here. Um, well, for one, I think personally, I think my work has always been an authentic representation of the power that our work can have, you know, from Red Tails to the People versus OJ to The Wire and so on and so forth. I think, Woo! thank you. <laughs> I think, you know, it again, it just needs to start in that place of, of being authentic, being true. Um, having an, a specific understanding of what story you're telling. Um, and again, the inclusion in, in, in within that. You know, I learned very early just as a PA growing up of the right practices to really, I think, bring into the process. And I just want to continue bringing that through the work that I do. But, you know, I think it's, it's very powerful. You know, we see the, 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 the numbers that they make. And, and again, I think it's just finding that humanity, showing representation that is rarely seen for all communities, you know, especially the marginalized communities that we're constantly trying to find, you know, a seat at the table to make sure that they feel respected, represented in all forms and fashions, you know. Any other comments on the communities, the audiences that we're serving, the power of them from an economic growth standpoint? Yeah, I mean, I'll just highlight the fact that hip hop is about to be 50 years old this year. And speaking of an art form that started in a very small niche way, but continued to grow and take over popular music, take over popular culture, take over, like have a global domination on culture, and I think that just speaks to culture finding its audience, no matter how limited it is in the, in the mainstream. Totally. And I can just imagine if we had less gatekeepers on the film and television side, how much more um, authentic representation would make people feel seen, you know, um, and, and just be able to live as boldly as music has allowed people to feel. Um, and I'm, I'm really just excited about, you know, you ask anyone from the era at the beginning of hip hop, they didn't think it was gonna last a year, much less 50 years, and right. now to have this global expansion. So when I think about audiences, putting back my marketing hat, um, I, I always try to think about um, what are those things that are driving culture? You know, and as filmmakers and storytellers, we are trying to make people laugh, cry, you know, or have some kind of reaction to the work that we're doing because we know that that's what um, brings people together. So I just, um, I, I always like to go back to hip hop because it's just, it continues to just transcend, transcend and yeah. be awe inspiring. Totally. I really, I really appreciate that and, and appreciate sort of the, the, the point around uh, the gatekeepers, right? Because um, it is a business, and I think we talk about it as a business, almost that like 
the numbers are going to always bear the things out and, and that there's not other incentives on top of the business. There's not incentives of, of people, why, what's motivating maybe people who are in charge of wanting to see their stories. Um, what um, the stories that we tell ourselves that can sometimes limit money about what may travel overseas or doesn't travel overseas, that no matter how many reports disrupt some of those things, people still have that analysis. Um, you know, back to this idea of the stories that people have about whether it's various communities or how the industry works, it's almost like gravity, right? The, it, it, people don't know where they first heard some of these stories, but it it will um, dictate how close they get to the edge, how close they will get to our communities, how close they will get to certain types of stories that should be told but end up not being told, how close they may uh, stay or move away from the conventional wisdom around how certain communities be portrayed. Gravity is real, but some of these other stories simply are not real, but they then dictate, and we don't make the implicit explicit enough. We don't force people to actually have to um, actually show and prove sort of their, um, their assumptions. And then as a result, we end up in this sort of um, uh, vicious cycle of, um, you know, not going far enough or not fully telling stories and then blaming the sort of uh, lack of acceptance or lack of travel of something um, on the communities or of people not actually wanting to see it when there was a whole set of business choices that sort of were behind the scenes that actually made that a reality. So then the communities get blamed for not actually um, wanting to show up for certain content, for not actually wanting to um, be engaged. The thing that I will say as the activist, like leader of an organization on here is that all of the movement that we have seen has been both an inside of folks inside the industry doing incredible work, pushing, taking risk, doing things that were pathbreaking and folks organizing people on the outside because the industry does not change, right? You don't get um, more acceptance for LGBT content without LGBT activists challenging the industry. You don't get different types of um, representations of women without activists in the gender justice space. You don't get different types of portrayals of black folks and people of color without folks demanding, holding accountable, pushing and challenging. And I think that we have to sort of recognize that the industry does not change on its own and the industry is not just about meritocracy. The industry actually has to be pushed and challenged because no marginalized community ever sort of gets ahead simply because people want it to be benevolent. Every single movement and struggle actually is driven and pushed and wins because people are willing to take risk on the inside and people on the outside are not willing to take no. Amazing. I always say we're the infiltrators <laughs> on the inside, right? There has to be infiltrators on the inside that are pushing things forward and coalescing all elements. So we're also taking questions throughout to really uh, generate the conversation piece. And a question came in, I think is very uh, uh, germane to what we're talking about. Um, this notion of authenticity, which obviously is a big part of our panel uh, theme, uh, somebody asked a question, how do you maintain the authenticity, not only after you sell it, but during pre-production, production, post, where there are so many voices in the room weighing in and giving notes, et cetera, et cetera. I'm gonna at ask you first, Anthony, since I know you've, you've been in this uh, every day. <laughs> you just can't give up. You know, you have to really believe and keep the faith and, and drive. A lot of what Rashad was saying, you just have to push. And, you know, and I think really find the ability to, you know, find the connectors that help move this forward. You can't do it by yourself, you know. And I think once you really bring in like-minded people who understand the vision, the mission, the objective, um, and are aligned and want and have the same goal, no matter how you all need to get there, as long as we're going to the same place, I think, you know, we lock arms and move forward. Um, you know, one of the projects that I'm trying to develop right now is really, it's about how the overconsumption of sugar affects everybody, but specifically in the black community, it's 60% more, you know, and you, it's so easy to realize why, you know, and it's just trying to, again, find those things that just continue to uncover all the stones that are forced against us and just look to unturn, overturn them, you know, and really kind of take those risks and get in and, and push forward. 
Nando, in the Latin market, because I'm sure folks are saying, no, this isn't Mexican, it's Cuban. You know, like, how do you handle that, you know, with all those voices? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I will say this, that, that owner is kind of, uh, network notes is, is a tale as old as time in, in, in Hollywood and affects everyone. Um, but it is true that, that certain projects and certain creators have a lot more, um, let's say, self-confidence to... Um, or, or standing in the industry to be able to fight for their vision in more effective ways. I mean, I, I do understand that sometimes when, when marginalized creators kind of just get in the room and they're just, you know, like they just want to get something, you know, they, it, it's tempting to just be like, yeah, sure, whatever, we'll do, you know, yeah, whatever you want, you know. Um, and ult the irony is that that ultimately could, you know, deprive the project of whatever made it special in the first place. Um, you know, the, the U.S. Latino community is, is the largest and fastest growing ethnic minority in the United States. And... Very, very, very few, very, very few projects make it across the finish line in the U.S. Um, it's, um, you know, I mean, there's, I'm, I'm excited to check out Shea Serrano's show, Primo, on, on Freebie, but there's not, a, there's not a whole lot uh, uh, of that kind of content making it all the way across the finish line. And that's, I mean, that's something that we work towards every day. Um, it's something that we work toward, like, that is part of a foundational um, mission of our, of our studio. Um, but, but it is a challenge. Um Rashad, we're talking about storytelling. You are the person that's on speed dial when change needs to happen in any and every industry. Tell us about some of the changes that you are making and have been making in Hollywood in terms of narrative storytelling. You know, a lot of what we try to focus on um, at Color of Change is what does it mean to raise the floor on what's acceptable and push up the ceiling on what's possible. And we do it a lot to try to think about strategies that sort of impact ways that particular areas of, of, of storytelling is happening. And so one area that, you know, we've focused on for the last several years is crime TV and the crime TV genre. And crime TV is not just about um, the criminal justice system. It's about health. It's about cities. It's about race. It's about um, safety. Um, and it's the sort of one of the most popular types of programming <laughs> out there. Like every... Every year, there's a whole slate of new shows, and any time you turn on the channel, you can find a rerun of something else, right? And so back in 2019, we partnered with the USC Norman Lear School to do something, to do a report that looked at all the representation um, on these shows for a season. The report ended up being called Normalizing Injustice. We didn't start off thinking the report would be called Normalizing Injustice, but that's in so many ways what we ended up seeing. And, and what we saw was a whole set of things from these shows. We saw um, the um, day in and day out on the vast majority of these shows, the good guy, um, the police officer, being able to do things that broke the law and being given Hollywood speeches to justify why the ends justify the means, why they had to step outside the law in order to get the bad guy. We saw um, very diverse worlds on air and very undiverse worlds behind the camera, but also diverse worlds on air that where like race existed, but racism didn't really exist. Um, that like, they just happened to be in these magical places where there were a lot of black police officers, a lot of black and brown criminals, but like race wasn't discussed. Way more black and brown judges that ever existed in the <laughs> real world. And I am not trying to take jobs away from those brothers and sisters, but what does it mean to have a symbolic 60-year-old black judge being given justice through, the, through their mouths from a white writer's room without sort of um, any type of sort of analysis about how they may feel about the criminal justice system, what it might be for them to actually become a lawyer, all sorts of like justification for surveillance of Muslim, Arab, South Asian communities without any sort of acknowledgement of the sort of fundamentals of, of uh, American constitutional and why we value like um, due process. Um, and so over and over we saw these things sort of um, being normalized, um, the biggest public relations arm for policing that could ever possibly exist. And so, you know, to the extent that um, we, you know, we policed this report, we've done a lot of work. Um, after the murder of George Floyd, we ended up in probably about 31 writers' rooms um, since 2021 of crime procedural shows, working to rework some of your favorites, um, some of whom were on NDA, some of whom were not, and, um, and really digging into kind of 
insert storylines around police unions, around internal investigations, around the ways in which these systems actually work and operate. Now, I know some people are going to be like, it's just entertainment, Rashad. But like, imagine a hospital show was putting out misinformation about diabetes, AIDS, or COVID. We would probably say that was dangerous. That was not useful. But because of who it impacts, and the people who it impacts, we almost make excuses that it's just entertainment. When we see from our work on our criminal justice team and local communities that judges will literally have to turn to their juries and said, we know you watch X show, but that's not actually how this works here. And the, all of the ways in which the sort of, um, our country is being educated um, by this. And so we think very clearly at Color of Change is that there's a way to be present about the challenges that exist in the content creation. There's also a way to be powerful. And power is the ability to change the rules. And so what we really try to focus on is how do we change the rules? Because we can't mistake presence for power. Presence is visibility, awareness, retweets, shout outs from the stage. It's us being aware that something is a problem. And when we have just presence and not power, we can think we've done something that we haven't done. And America can love, celebrate, and monetize black culture and hate black people at the same time. And those two things don't have to be in conflict. And so that's why holding the line between presence and power is incredibly important. And so we work every day to try to build these strategies that actually hopefully shift the norms and practices, hopefully change some rules along the way, and at the end of the day, hopefully create a, um, enough incentive for people to believe that something different is possible. Now, we're constantly faced with headwinds, right? We're constantly faced with an industry that wants to do the same thing over and over again because there's like a, there can sometimes be a paint by numbers model. But I spent 2005 to 2011 um, as head of programs at GLAD. And so during my time at GLAD, I remember, right, I remember one example of being in conversation with Fox right when they were bringing Glee onto the air and they were asking for our help because they knew there would be a lot of backlash around such an openly gay high school student. And there would be backlash from the right, and I even had to like go on Fox News around it. And, um, and I'll say that like um, they had to fight, and they had to shift, and they had to shift conventional wisdoms and rules that every single day on many shows were being made. Oh, we can't really do that. We, yeah, we can have a gay um, student, but maybe it'll just be a two-episode two arc and it won't be a main character. Because people took risks, because there was advocacy out the outside, because new unwritten rules were set, you probably can't have a high school show, a show about high schoolers, without kids representing all different types of backgrounds. And how much better is that for the world that we live in, that the representation is more clear, and to the point around authenticity, that authenticity was driven by, obviously, creative people taking those risks, pushing, and also the type of demand from the public, but also the work of advocates and those on the outside that were working to make sure that these type of things can succeed, that the industry is held accountable, that advertisers don't get to disrupt what actually needs to happen and what actually needs to show. And so across all of these different types of representations, I think it's just important that we are continuing to build the type of advocacy. And then at the end, we're also trying to help people have the type of immersive experiences that are necessary so that our writers' rooms, so that the people who are creating this content actually come from the communities um, that they're representing. That they're representing. So we're at an international conference, content uh, LA is part of Content London, et cetera. How have you guys been working with international folks? Hopefully you guys are making a lot of deals while you're here. Nando, I'll start with you because I know you are traveling all over the world yeah. creating content. Um, yeah, I mean, our, our focus is, is, is pretty squarely international. I mean, we have our production team down in Mexico. Um, we've produced a couple films in Argentina. We've produced in Spain, um, Colombia, obviously Mexico. Um, so, you know, that's a, that's a huge um, bedrock of, of, of Latin American Spanish-speaking content is international co-productions. I mean, um, the vast majority of films are, are co-productions between different countries and, and collaborations, both from a financial um, and producing side. So, so, yeah, I mean, that is our bread and butter. That's what we do. That's awesome. So, anybody else on the international front? Yeah, I would just say... Um, 
one of the areas of expansion for Color Creative where management and production company has been in launching our talent division and our co-heads of talent are here and they largely represent an international um, roster of artists, um, which allows for us to have a huge perspective in terms of um, what sells, what buys, what the other side of the conversation is. Uh, through having partnerships with their representation in um, those places, but also we represent several producers outside of um, the Hollywood system, Canada, South Africa, Ghana, et cetera. And it's really um, clear that as a lot of these global companies go into local language, um, they are following really bad practices into those local language communities because they, a lot of these communities are, um, there's no ownership of IP, they're very low budgets, they're asked to do things in um, a very uh, rushed way and it does show in the content and I think um, what we're hoping to do is bridge the gap between creators here who have um, you know, and, and this is what we're fighting for, have a career-building, career-lasting industry here and, and, and share those best practices with international creators so we can take advantage of telling different stories from different um, complex, um, you know, lived experiences, but through this system that allows people to actually take pride in the work they do and be able to, like, feed their family, go on, build legacy, um, and build new filmmakers who are empowered to um, ask the questions, break the rules, go into those writer rooms and, um, and into those uh, meetings and not say, um, okay, well, I'll just, I guess I'll take that note, you know? Um, and I, and I want to just mention on the point of Glee and uh, because I really did love that show and the show started as a rule-breaking show. Yep. You know, just the format of the show, just how they did, everything they did broke the rules. So I think when you go in and you know that you're going to do that as a creator, you know, you got to break the rules almost every step of the way. And, and I think when you, when you do something like that, that's when you get Britney Spears to come on the show and, and people like that who are also um, effectively, you know, breaking the rules in their industry and that's what makes it so exciting. So... I think it's a great sample. I mean, obviously, you watch it now and it doesn't, doesn't age well, but um, it was a good start. Well, it's all about breaking barriers, right? Breaking rules, breaking... I mean, you guys are experts at that. What are some of the other barriers that we haven't talked about yet? We're running out of time, but we want to make sure we cover a lot of ground here. What are the opportunities? What are the challenges that, you know, you guys have experienced firsthand, but also that folks in this room can help us help break down those barriers? Domestically and internationally. Both. I would just say a big barrier that we have is just the storytelling around comps. And um, a lot of our industry is based on, oh, well, this is like that or this did that. And, and, and therefore, um, that, that's what we model against. And I think we have to break the rules on comps. Um, Netflix surely isn't showing anyone their numbers, but we continue to sell our thing, our projects to them, and they don't rely on comps the way that the traditional industry does. So I think we just have to like band together, get more knowledgeable about actual audience, and and de debunk this comp conversation. Yeah, it's the only way we're going to continue to find the space and opportunity to tell stories that are necessary. Um, it's, 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 it's challenging, you know, just trying to continue to create <laughs> that thing and find original material, original stories, and opportunity that I think can, you know, tap into humanity and express and show, shine lights on so many different categories. In all spaces, you know, we're at AHP as well as doing uh, developing material on all platforms, fe features, TV, unscripted, um, and just really trying to find those opportunities to continue to be the microphone and the lens for all the, you know, underrepresented people, com communities, um, conversations that are so necessary. You know, I think we're all making those contributions and just finding ways to, you know, continue to chart. And being that. fearless requires yeah. <laughs> courage. Um, over the course of like last year, we did about uh, 100 interviews across the industry to really try to get a sense of where we're getting stopped. Where, like, what were the challenges in terms of some of the storytelling around race, racism, and justice that were like 
creating challenges for us. If people were saying Black Lives Matter, standing up for women, if people were saying these things, but then we were feeling like we weren't seeing it immersed. And, and um, you know, over and over again, we heard people say things like, of course, storytelling matters, especially at the executive level, of course, story, but not what I do. What I'm just doing is so funny or subversive or, and so there's a, a kind of a gap between people being able to say that there's impact be, behind the storytelling and then being able to kind of divorce themselves and their behavior from it. And then the thing that I think lends itself to the need here is that we have to have more immersive experiences. And so we've been partnering right now with RAA, who designed the African American Museum on the Mall, the Holocaust Museum, and they're working on President Obama's museum on creating a set of immersive experiences that we're hoping to launch sometime towards the end of next year into the following year here in LA that will create a home for the type of immersive experiences, partnering with hopefully groups like Planned Parenthood and GLAAD and Pillars Fund and, and National Domestic Workers Alliance and a lot of the groups who have been here in Hollywood also doing, because all of us recognize that we can't go into writers' rooms with um, fact sheets and um, PowerPoints and expect people to come out knowing how to do something different. And while there's so much more DEI in the industry, it has become choreography, where like you go into the room and the men know what to say and not say. The white folks know I can say one thing but not do many things. The people of color like say the thing. And I get invited to a lot of these things where afterwards people come to me on LinkedIn and they'll say, well, you know what really happened here was this. And it's all sort of this like, tap dance that doesn't actually give people new experiences because this city and so many other places where content is happening, people are not forced or invited or even able to have the type of nuanced conversations or experiences that will make them effective at creating stories about anyone other than themselves. I think one of the, one of the biggest barriers for the for, for U.S. Latino projects in particular, um, and I think it's a problem across the industry, is one of, of class. Um, and that, this, ha this has a particular um, salience to the Latino community because, um, you know, the, by the nature of how uh, Latin America works and stuff, like, often what will pass as kind of a Latino content is usually just coming from, like, the child of some rich person in, in, in Colombia or something, you know? Um, and, and really is, like, they, they have nothing in common, almost nothing in common with, like, a kid from South Texas or... or or New Mexico, and that's like, if, you know, so many of the projects that move forward come from creators that are, you know, went to like an Ivy League school or, or whatever, because a lot of the executives on the other side are also went to Ivy League schools and they, and they, they can speak the same lingo, the same language, and, and that to me is like one of the biggest barriers, at least for the advancement of kind of U.S. Latino projects in the United States, is like, is just that if that's, if that's, the, if that's the prerequisite, then it's gonna be really, really difficult. And by the way, I can say this, this could be a master class. We could be here for like, you know, having, getting a degree on this. These are the most amazing uh, panelists and speakers. Thank you, Nando. Having worked in the lab market for a long time, I totally agree with you. There's a whole other uh, part of the socioeconomic piece of it and really understanding the audience and what, 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 uh, what makes them tick in Latin America, country by country, but also in the U.S. Latino market. So much more work to do. So we're going to wrap up soon, but I want to make sure we go around. I mean, the last few years have been insane. Uh, what are you the most excited for this year? What's coming up? What's on the horizon? What are you excited? Uh, what are sort of your final thoughts for, for the folks here in the audience today? And we can go, we can start with Nando, come down. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited. We're debuting a show on HBO Max. You can check it out. It's called Ugly. I love it. It's, uh, it's about a group of friends from Mexico City that want to become uh, trap stars. So, yeah. Um, we're releasing our next uh, iteration of our Normalizing Injustice report, which goes back and looks at two seasons of content since our last report and really helps dive into where we're at on these type of representations, especially in the aftermath of all the commitments that industry made around George Floyd. I'm looking forward to both the conversations, but I'm also looking forward to celebrating some of the places where progress has been made and celebrating some of the creatives that have made progress and also looking at uh, the places where we have more work to do because both of those things I think are important for our path forward. Ooh, exciting to see that. Um, we're launching our pipeline initiative called the Find Your People program. Um, Color Creative was started as a uh, pipeline company um, by Issa Rae and Denise Davis where they were they would host events like this and talk to emerging creators about how they got their start in hopes that what they learned along the way would benefit 
um, the future storytellers who you know look like them or from their were from their communities. So we're extending that ethos, the ethos of our company, into a pipeline initiative. It's actually a training curriculum for. 28 filmmakers, um, we're going to break them into four, four cohorts, and they're going to learn, I think, what's essential in um, coming together as a production team. They're also going to learn from each other, and, and our whole premise is networking across is just as powerful as networking up and building community can actually help us to make impact on our industry. Awesome. I'm inspired by y'all. I just want to say that, because this <laughs> is really great. Each one teach one, right? Um, we at AHP are excited about several things. Um, on the feature side, we are developing um, a few different things, categories for me to direct um, that I'm excited about. I'm, I, I love finding material and spaces that people don't expect me to be in. You know, I'm always sent the, the things that, that, you know, are in my wheelhouse but are kind of known, and I'm, I love breaking those barriers and finding different opportunity, whether it's musicals, comedy, you know, or other uh, spaces. Um, and on TV, we have a project at, at FX, FX that's um, kind of Eastern Promises, uh, cool. written, created by a first-gen um, Russian-American that's really telling his story. Um, really, really super excited about it. His name is Bobak Esfarjani, uh, really talented writer. Um, obviously, because of the strike, that's a little paused. Um, we have a, a half hour at Onyx that really shines a light on the homeless epidemic that's happening all over the globe. Um, and it's you know done in that space in a comedic, dramatic way just because you know it has a double entendre, basically shining a light on the issue, but also really shining a light on us not discrediting and, and just throwing people who end up unhoused away because so many of them have stories and are people you know, first and foremost. And so that's something we're super excited about. Um, uh, and I think in the un unscripted space, which is right here right now because of our times, I'm excited to really get into that space, especially as a, as a, as a filmmaker. Um, we have some prestige doc films, one that we're out in the marketplace with now about Jimi Hendrix and the ghetto fighters, told, told through the ghetto fighters' point of view. Um, uh, what else do we have? Sugar Daddy, which is the, the piece on the sugar consumption and diabetes and how that affects the world, but especially, you know, the black community largely. Um, we have an animation piece that is done by two first-gen um, uh, Caribbean-American girls named Punam Patel and... Um, Danielle Pinnock, yeah, it's my girl, and I can't even remember her name. Um, it's titled Unmentionables, and it, you know, it, it, it is done in a uh, graphic way that really kind of, again, allows us to share stories, both on, you know, in all dynamics, you know, told through the lens of unmentionables and a drawer, you know, panties. <laughs> T-shirts, socks, what have you. Um, <laughs> we, we all have them. It's a yeah, fun, yeah, it's exactly. a fun piece, and those girls are just really dynamic and, and talented. So an exciting slate! Excited, oh my goodness, yeah. do you sleep, Anthony? I do not. Okay, there you go. There you go. I love the work. I love what I do, and I love creating. None, none of you sleep. You guys are doing amazing work. Okay, so we're gonna wrap it up. It's been my true, true pleasure. I am inspired. I please encourage you to watch their work, read the materials, read the report. Read their mission statements because the organizations these uh, panelists lead are just amazing and unique and there's so much power in what they do and it's so inspirational. So with that, I want to thank all of you. And uh, afterwards, I'm sure we'll be around for just a little bit to answer any questions as well. But thank you again and have an incredible weekend. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more interviews by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. <laughs>